Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. That never gets old for me. I have to be honest. I don't know. Um, I'm kind of sad to see that video go. Today is our last day. We're going to be wrapping up the series uh, called Happiness. I hope you are happier um, this month. I hope you've enjoyed this month and I've uh, enjoyed you guys being here kind of working through it. If you're kind of jumping in new uh, to Encounter Church, we kind of tackle each month. We tackle a topic, uh, needs in our lives, and look at what the Bible says about it. And so this month, we've been looking at happiness and how we can engage around and find more happiness in our lives, and that at the heart of happiness is more. And uh, so if you are kind of jumping in today, you're, you're new to Encounter Church, I would encourage you, uh, as Jason referenced earlier, to look into the app. Uh, you can go back and watch all our previous messages uh, or our podcast and catch up with this series, because each week has, has been something really helpful um, for you. Uh, if... Uh, you probably would never want this to happen to you, but in March of 2016, so around last year, uh, Lindsay Diaz leaves her home and uh, heads off to work. In the course of this day, uh, there's an appointment that's going to play out that totally affects the rest of her life. You see, um, some guys are loading up in a truck from Bill Neighbors Demolition, and they're typing in the address and are headed towards this place that they have a demo permit. Uh, Lindsay Diaz had, had suffered tornado damage in her home, like many, like many in her community. And uh, the, this demolition company had a general practice. They would show up at the location. They would uh, call their superior because in the demo business, you, you measure twice and you demo once. And, um, and so they call the superior and they say, hey, we're at 7601. And they said, perfect, 7601. That's exactly where you need to be. And they hung up the phone and they began the demolition. And uh, they had typed into Google Maps 7601 Calypso Drive and had pulled up. And instead of ending up at 7601 Calypso Drive, they had ended up, because of Google Maps and an error, at 7601, uh, I don't even know how to say this name, um, but it is Costuel Drive. It is not Calypso Drive, it's Costuel Drive, but it was one street over. And a demo company hung up the phone after saying 7601, that sounds correct, and they demoed the wrong house. Lindsay Diaz shows up that day, and, and her house, which had suffered minor damage from the tornado, and which she was really grateful for because everyone else around her had suffered significant damage from the tornado, had, came home to find that her house had been destroyed. And, uh, and the guys who did it had no clue. And what I loved and hated about this story was I felt like this was a perfect living picture of where and how to wrap up this series on happiness. You see, at the core of happiness is more. But if you end up at the wrong more, destruction happens. And that it's easy to re rebuild a house, it's a whole lot harder to rebuild a life. And that if we're not careful in the pursuit of happiness and typing in happiness into our personal GPS, we can find ourselves at the wrong location. And in the end, what happens is destruction. And instead of building a life, we destroy it. And it's insidious. It's one of those mores. Because at the core of happiness is more. And if you are looking for the wrong more, then you end up getting far more than you intended. And today, as we wrap up, I want to deal with the one more that is often the biggest lie we believe around happiness. It is the more that gets typed into GPSs more than any other more. It's the one that drives people in life. It's the one that they're convinced, if that's the more I get, I'll finally be okay. 
Now, what I love about the Bible is that while it may be written thousands of years ago, it is still written to humans. And when you read enough history, what you find is that we really haven't changed that much. The way we dress looks a little different. The way we get places look a little different. The way we store our food may look a little different, but we are still at our core human. And the same struggles they had, we have too. And there's a city that gets a letter from one of the kind of architects of the churches that it, that it has sprawling everywhere through the city. Um, a guy named Paul writes a letter to the young man he's left in charge of the churches in the city of Ephesus. And in the midst of this letter to this young protege, Timothy, Paul, one of the most famous Christians outside of Jesus, gives them instruction for some personal issues that they were dealing with, issues that you and I, I believe, can, can relate to as well, issues that you and I deal with every day. And specifically, one of those core issues are at the more that often hinders us from pursuing happiness and causes us to end up in the wrong place. If you have the app that Jason referenced, or if you would like to download it, I would encourage you to. Inside our message notes section is the passage I want to deal with today. It's the letter of 1 Timothy, and it's called 1 Timothy because Paul, the apostle, this famous follower of Jesus, someone who had spent his life dedicated to destroying the church, then ends up having a powerful moment with Jesus and ends up building the church all around the world. He writes a letter to this young man named Timothy, who he leaves in charge. And this is the first of two letters, which is why it's called 1 Timothy. And at the end of this letter, written to a man who is leading multiple churches and people in a city called Ephesus, he gives very direct instructions. In fact, he uses words that you don't find him use very often in his letters. Let me give you a little bit of backdrop, because it's helpful to understand where Timothy is. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. There was about 200,000 people living in Ephesus at the time. And you have to realize, for, for the ancient world, 200,000 people was a lot of people. Today, 200,000 people in a city is a lot of people. This is a, one of the most influential cities in the world at the time. Ephesus is at the end of a river. It's going into the waterways. There's three major roads that all lead to Rome cutting through. So this is a place where not only does the world come and travel through, there are large amounts of infrastructure and wealth and commerce all flowing out. One of the biggest, one of the, actually in the ancient seven wonders of the world, one of the ancient seven wonders was in Ephesus. It was the, the specific temple. This temple was magnificent and glorious, and it was dedicated to the goddess of fertility, and people would travel from all around the world to come to this location to worship. Paul, when he comes to Ephesus and he begins to start churches, these churches explode and lives are being changed and families are being transformed and people are having their whole orientation of life, the way they think, the way they see, completely redone by Jesus. And in the midst of that, some tensions start to grow. You see, people whose finances had streamed and flowed out of the temple worship were starting to be threatened. And even though you and I may not connect with that, we can connect with something called Amazon coming into the world, right? And all of a sudden, the way they do business totally disrupts the way everyone else had done business. That just this weekend, in the midst of Black Friday, when everyone used to rush and elbow and punch and run over each other, we now just logged onto Amazon and purchased things online. That businesses saw 17% 
drop in the number of foot traffic this past weekend because of Amazon disrupting. And Paul is the modern-day Amazon. He comes in, and his religious teaching completely disrupts what people believe and understand. And this caused financial implications to the point that a riot breaks out. These people's livelihood were threatened. These, these people in Ephesus were incredibly wealthy. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to understand how wealthy, but just recently, archaeologists have discovered what's called the terrace homes in the ancient city of Ephesus. And these terrace homes, if you've ever been to Southern California and you've seen the mountains and how people's houses are just kind of stacked on top of each other and they, they see the water and they've got the view, this is what these wealthy individuals in Ephesus had. They had terrace homes which is impressive in itself, but to make it even more impressive, these people 2,000 years ago had running cold and hot water in their homes. Indoor plumbing is a very modern invention for America, but it was not for Ephesus. They had figured out how to use terracotta pipes, not just to bring indoor plumbing, but how to actually heat their home in the winter. We use that same technology in many of the homes that we live in. It's called radiating heat, right? And they were doing this almost 2,000 years ago. They had influence, they had wealth, they had power. They lived in a thriving, influential city. And you can see why on the surface and even at the substance, they could relate to you and I. Because Ephesus wasn't too much different from where we live today. And Paul says, Timothy, I want you to write these words to these people. It's essential that they understand because I've seen the power and the impact of where they live, and I've seen what happens when where they live starts to take over how they live. And so he writes these words at, towards the end of this letter, beginning with verse 17. He says this, command those, which is a really, really interesting phrase. Paul doesn't use the word command a lot. But in the course of the next two sentences I'm going to read to you, he uses it twice. He says, command those. This is emphatic. This is direct. Paul says, look, I am about to tell you something, Timothy, that's really important in your leadership. This has the power to build the church that you're leading, or this has the power to destroy the church because we're all in a happiness pursuit. We're all chasing after happiness. We're all chasing after more, and you need to make sure they're chasing at after the more at the core of happiness. And he says, those who are rich in this present world, because there are a lot of them, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Paul knows firsthand how wealthy this city is, and he knows firsthand how dangerous their wealth can be. He's almost died because of the greed present in this community. And so what Paul does is Paul says, Timothy, I want you to make sure they understand this. It's okay to have money, but it's not okay for your money to have you. Which is what he says to them. That when your money has you, you start to make bad decisions. You start to misplace hope. You start to misplace trust. That having money isn't bad Notice, he doesn't condemn money in this passage or the passages before it. What he does condemn, what he does command, is to be aware, to be sensitive to the fact that your money may have you. And if your money has you, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it's got you. 
And he says that one of the dangers is that you misplace your hope. And what happens is that we all have needs, right? I'm grateful that you have enough money to wear clothes, just as you are grateful that I have enough money to wear clothes, right? That's not a bad thing. We want to affirm that. We all have needs. But what happens when money has you is that your needs transform and you start calling things needs that aren't needs. And your desire for those needs that aren't needs start to grow and get bigger and more starts to become part of your vocabulary. And in the end, the pursuit of money for your needs starts to become pursuit for money for greed. And this is a subtle shift. He saw it almost kill him. He says, Timothy, you've got to make sure that they know this. Teach them this. And the reason why is that greed is an appetite. And you don't satisfy an appetite. Right? We're all living proof of that. Thursday, many of us probably ate ourselves into a food coma, coma right? <laughs> that I discover every single day after Thanksgiving that you can, in fact, have a hangover from meat, right? And all of us experience that. All of us probably uttered the words, I ate too much. But the problem with an appetite is it's never satisfied. So you and I have continued to eat since then. It wasn't like I ate one large meal and then I was done for the rest of the year. I ate one large meal on Thursday, regretted it, and then ate more. <laughs> right? Just like you, because appetites are never fully satisfied. We, we, we may suppress them temporarily. We may give them something that quietens them down, but they always come back. And Paul knows, Timothy Greed is an appetite. You never satisfy it. And this is something that even research has demonstrated. That they've done surveys where they've asked people, how much money do you need? And consistently, in almost every single demographic, in every single kind of financial place and stage, the answer is consistently double. Well, if I had about double what I have right now, I'd be okay. Then you go to that group that says, I need double, they actually have the double that the first group said, if I had that, I would be okay. And you ask them how much money they need, and they say, double. When you go to that group who has double what that group said, that had double what that group said, and you ask them how much money they need, they say, double. And it keeps playing out. That It doesn't matter how much money you need, whether you have millions or whether you have ten. Double is usually the answer because greed cries out for more and more at the core of happiness. And if we don't have the correct address, we mislabel it double. Well, I'm happy if I've got double the amount of money I'm making right now, then I would be okay. And what happens is we end up, we drive up to these locations that end up destroying our lives because double is not what we were made for. This greed, this appetites, never fully satisfied. And what social scientists who don't believe even what Paul is writing echo what Paul is saying. In fact, I just read a study this last week someone sent to me that um, was pulling from the National Geographic article that I've referenced a couple times over this past month. And what they found is that once your basic needs are met financially, that money no longer correlates to happiness that it may on the front side correlate because you, if you're living in a place where your needs are not met, then you will look to happiness. You will look to money as a source of happiness. But what they found consistently is, give or take, around $70,000 a year 
based on where you're living around America, here it's 70,000, other parts of the nation, it could be 25,000, right? I mean, it, there's a little bit of a cost of living increase here. But that consistently, when people have their needs met, money starts to no longer correlate to happiness. Now, it took social scientists with really fancy degrees, a lot of money, and a lot of research to figure out what Paul wrote in a letter to Timothy, Timothy 2,000 years ago. He says, there's a different way, there's a better way, Timothy, and that's the way I want you to point them to. I want you to help them combat greed because more money does not lead to more happiness. It's the wrong more to search for. Now, uh, probably, let me just hit pause for a second because I recognize that for some of us in your mind, you may think like probably what a lot of these people thought, well, I'm not rich. I grew up underneath the poverty line. Uh, we were, by very every definition of the word poor growing up, and, and I would have labeled myself poor. But I've had the fortune of traveling around the world to some countries that aren't America and aren't the Western world, and I've spent time in villages with people who would have been considered wealthy in those villages, and they have no indoor plumbing. I've walked through villages in Africa, and I've been in places in Southeast Asia, and I've seen what poor really looks like. And I'm telling you that when you go out and you look at what the world actually is, not what the world we live in is, you realize that we're all wealthy. And this is what Paul is saying. It's like, look, we're all in a place. Like, we, we all fit this definition of rich. And so I understand that for, so for many of us that wealth and riches is relative. But for the sake of this discussion and Paul's advice, we're all in this group. And so he continues. He says, look, I want to I not just command them not to. I want to command them to do something. One of the things he commands to them in a passage before this is something our life groups are going to tackle this week. And if you're not connected to a life group, let me tell you what it is. It's, it's a group of people who meet in homes around our community who take what we look at on Sunday and we go deeper into what this looks like in our personal lives, our professional lives on Monday. This is a group where you get to have a relaxed setting where you get to dialogue and discuss, hey, what does this look like for my life and every day? And this week, what they're going to do out of this message is they're going to tackle one of the ways that we combat greed, which is contentment. And so if you've never considered a life group, swing by starting point, which is the glass kind of atrium space that when you walked into our lobby, you saw it right there. Someone with a gray shirt would love to sit down and talk with you and help you kind of try out a group this week. Or you can do it through the app with starting point icon. But this would be a week worth checking out because we're going to tackle contentment. But Paul, in this section, continues on and says, here's how we combat greed, Timothy. Teach them this. And he says in verse 18, command them, because this word, this word again, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and be willing to share. He commands Timothy to teach them this alternative way, not greed, but generosity. He said that there is a more at the core of happiness, and it's not greed, it's generosity. Instead of your life pursuit being to be rich, how about make your life pursuit in actually being rich in good deeds and generosity and willing to share? And he kind of lays out this pathwork because what Paul understands, what he's trying to teach Timothy and what he's trying to teach us is that greed is about the pursuit of making a better living where generosity is about making a better life. And there's a big difference between having a better living and having a better life 
That greed turns us into consumers, but generosity turns us into contributors. That generosity at its core is what God wants for us and through us, not what God wants from us. That, that that's greed cries out and pushes back on this and says, no, God's just trying to get something from us. And Paul's saying, no, no, this is about what God wants to do for us and through us. Because he understands that greed is just about getting a better living. But when you get generosity, you start to make a better life. And a happier, richer life. And I notice that he says willing, willing to share, right? That, that this is important because many of us think generosity is a feeling. It's an emotion, and it's not. He says you need to be willing to share. That willing is a choice. It's a decision. It's a discipline. It's not an emotion. That generosity is something you do intentionally, not just spontaneously. One story I've heard just recently this past week, I think illustrates it, is um, a story of a man, a young man in his 30s named Brendan Jones who lives in Philadelphia. Brendan Jones um, had a moment in his life where he was walking down the street and, and like many downtown cities, there were homeless people and one of them reached out to Jones and said, hey, um, I'm hungry. And so Jones gives him some food and he keeps walking. But as he's walking away, he has this nagging feeling like, I wish I could have done more for him. I don't really feel like I made a difference. I just gave him food to keep him in his current circumstance longer. And so his mind kept kind of racing like, what could I have done that would have made a difference in his life? And so he thought about what he did. He cut hair. He was like, you know what? A haircut makes someone look brand new. So he stuck his tools in his car, and he decided the next time he saw someone homeless and they asked for help, he was going to offer what he could do. And so sure enough, on South 15th Street in Walnut, downtown Philly, a man asked him for help, and he says, I'd like to help you, but this may be weird. Can I give you a haircut? And the homeless man says, no, I'm not leaving my spot. I'm begging. This is where I'm going to make my, my money today. Like, I can't leave this spot. He says, okay, I've got the tools in the car. I'll just come back and cut your hair right here. And so he does. And he did. And what, what happens is that he walks away and he says, I know for many people that moment it would have just, look, you just gave him a haircut. But I'm telling you, when you give someone a haircut, they look brand new. A guy, this guy, right? And this is a picture of him. And what he does, I realized that for many of these men walking in or these ladies walking into any downtown establishment trying to get a job, that a haircut could be the difference in them being turned away and them giving an opportunity to sit down and have a conversation. And so Jones started giving haircuts. He even created an Instagram around it called Haircuts for Homeless. And in downtown Philly, he walks around regularly and this is what he would do. Any homeless person he would meet, he would offer them a chance to have a haircut, and he would give them one. In the course of doing that, over hundreds of people have gotten a haircut that one guy named Sean Johnson happened to notice him one day. And Johnson was also a barber who happened to have an open barber shop that he was trying to get rid of. And he noticed his generosity, and so he walks up to Jones and says, Hey, how about, how about I give you a barber shop? 
Now, this barbershop is only about two blocks from where Johnson already was, and so in many ways, this could have been competition for him. Jones says, are you kidding me? And he says, no, and he throws him the keys, and he says, it's yours. And so now, in downtown Philly, there is a barbershop two blocks from where Johnson's barbershop is called, make sure I get this right, Phenomenon Perfection. And he cuts the hairs every single Monday. Every single Monday is called Makeover Monday. And any homeless individual in downtown Philly can walk into this hair salon and can have their whole body transformed. They can have a haircut. They get toiletries. They get food. And on Mondays, these places are filled with people whose lives, whose externals are being transformed and remade so much that it gets backed up. And so what Johnson, who gave him this barbershop in the first place, he now comes down on Mondays to help Jones. And if the barbershop gets too full, then he says, hey, come down to mine. And they walk a couple of blocks and two different barbershops on Mondays are filled with men and women getting their hair cut. And that this is, has, has triggered an, a movement that in New York City, there are individuals who do this, that people have become awakened to the fact that generosity can look and be almost anything. What I love about this story is it illustrates for us some of those practices of generosity, that generosity is, is about more than just finances. It's more than just money. Here's a man who didn't have a lot of money, but he had a talent. He could cut hair. And so what does he do? He offers that ability to anyone who needs it. That it can be wrapped up in his time or your talents. It can be your finances. But at the core of generosity that I think this is really helpful to understand is that generosity is not passive. It's purposeful. It's intentional. That many of us think generosity is a spontaneous thing you do in in light of a need, but I'm telling you that true impactful generosity is scheduled. And the reason I know this is that many of you are sitting in here right now and your kids are absolutely loving this church. And the reason they love this church is not because someone is paid by this church to make them love it. It's because there are people who are a part of Encounter Church who have made sure that their schedule on every single week or every two or three times a month has a little bit of a block carved out so that they can serve you and your family, so that they can create spaces that kids run to, not run away from, that they have created spaces that I hear from you quite regularly. I wasn't going to come today, but my kid woke me up and drug me to church. They have created spaces where kids want to be at church and beg you to bring them. And they do this out of a place of generosity. And they schedule it. There are people in this room who do that, who schedule their time, who schedule their energy, who are not being paid for this, but do this out of a place of generosity to make a difference. That it's scheduled, it's not spontaneous. We as a church could not exist on spontaneous generosity. We exist because people are purposeful with their generosity. They're disciplined in their generosity. They schedule it intentionally. And that it's not just scheduled, it's significant. People give up. Let's be honest, Sunday morning is like the last little tiny protected spot of like, not having to get up early. This is the time where you can still enjoy yourself before the world creeps in, right? Saturdays are crazy. 
But Sunday mornings, I mean, there's a reason Lionel Richie said it's easy like Sunday morning. <laughs> I mean, Lionel knew it, and you know it too. <laughs> Sunday morning is good, and these people sacrifice a significant block of their week to be generous. You're sitting in a room full of people who are generous, not just with their time and talents, but with their finances too. And it's the same way for them. They have set aside, it, they call it percentage giving, but they've set aside significant scheduled times to give to this church and to give to other nonprofits because generosity at its core is purposeful. It's intentional. It's not a feeling. It's a choice and a discipline. And this is what Paul is instructing Timothy to teach them. Look, make a difference. It's why... At church, we don't really press hard into money too often, but here's an opportunity. Every single week, we want to be hopeful and helpful. And so we've created a way that you can engage with us with generosity. And for some of you who maybe aren't even sure about faith, and I recognize you're like, oh, I don't want to give money to a church. I'm not even sure I believe in this thing. I'm not even going to ask you to give money to church. Here's what we want to do. We believe at the core of, Christmas, at the, core of the Christmas story is a God who gave. Right? The core of our faith is a God who was generous. And so with the story of generosity that we celebrate every single Christmas, we want to make sure that, that others experience that same generosity too. And so we've created something um, that you'll find in the app. We've created something uh, where we've partnered with a local nonprofit who has identified families in our communities that have need, who this, who this Christmas will not be able to actually experience or have a good Christmas morning when they, that outside of someone showing up and making a difference, they won't have a Christmas morning. And so we have partnered with them and we've adopted five families. And those five families um, have 12 kids and they're in the app right now. That if you click on the gifts in the app, it's right up top. We put it very kind of easy to find. Um, or you can go to EncounterChurch.com forward slash gifts. Or you, if you just say, hey, look, I'm not into this digital thing, right? If you just swing by starting point, someone with a gray t-shirt would love to help you. Sign up today. And here's what I want to ask you to do. We believe generosity is a big deal. And we do this in our community regularly. And we want to transform Christmas for these five families. And so you get the opportunity, not to give, but to go and buy a gift. So we've identified 12 kids. You'll see them when you click on the app. And inside the app, you'll see who the kid is and what they've asked for. And what I'm going to ask you to do is pick one of those kids. As a family, go shopping together. Talk about generosity. Talk about why you're buying a Christmas present for a person you do not know. And it's because we believe there's a God who demonstrated his love and his generosity by what he gave. And that we believe that giving is better than receiving, which is a lesson I know we need in our household, right? And to go and shop for this kid and to follow the directions that we've made it really clear, if you can't get back here by December 10th, just mail it to the church. If you want to engage with Amazon, buy it on Amazon and ship it here. We're okay with that. Um, but help us transform. Let's work together to transform four families Christmas this year. And that these 12 kids will know that they are loved. That there is a church that has been willing to step in and to demonstrate the generosity that's the core of our faith. And so by December 10th, we want to bring them all together or have them shipped here by then. 
so that we can make sure that we put them into the nonprofit's hands so that in Christmas morning, these five families have an incredible experience. And here's the deal I'll make to you. If, if today, not even before podcast people, not Facebook Live people are watching this, if you rock this and we fill it up by next week, then I'll come back next week and I'll say, hey, we've got some more families because you guys were awesome. And we, we just said to the nonprofit, hey, give us some more families. We can do more. Because we believe with what Paul states at the end with verse 19 when he says these words, that in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That we believe that when we practice generosity, that generosity is about making a better life, not just for ourselves, but for others too. And that there is something profound that when we practice generosity, it's not just transforming where we are in this life. It puts, this, it puts all of life in perspective that we see not just this life, but we see the next life too. And we start to realize that there is only one constant between those two worlds and it's people. That when you invest your life, when you invest your generosity in people, you're investing in the one thing that gives you a return on your investment. That so much of what we invest in in this world is uncertainty. But when we invest it in the lives of people, we're putting our money in the one place that actually matters the most. And this is at the core of what, as a church, we do. Some of you may be new, and you, you may not even be aware of this, but 10%, over 10%, in fact, it's not 10, it's over 10%, of every single thing that you give, we give away. And that we as a church, we have a small budget when it comes to staff. We don't have a very large staff because we want to be a generous church. We didn't want to have to move into this building because we recognized by moving in this building that we would have to start paying for this building, that we would have to modify this building, and that we still owe 300000 trying to kind of cover up for the construction costs. We recognized when we made that choice, it meant we couldn't be as generous as we'd wanted to. That from day one, we've said we will be known for what we do for the community, not what we take from it. That's at the core of who we are. And just to let you know what you've done so far, Puerto Rico has consistently been in the news, and I've referenced a few times in some of the ways that you're making a difference there. But I just wanted to give you an update of of how you're giving and how your generosity is, is making a difference around the world. That we have through the cooperation partnership with some other churches that we are um, making inroads and in providing. We've, we've sent almost uh, 50 relief kits, all of us as churches working together, and that these relief kits, each one of these relief kits allows a pastor to feed, to, to produce over 100 meals a day. And that right now there are mobile kitchens on the way that have been cleared by FEMA that are working its way through the port system of Puerto Rico, and that when these 6 to 10 kitchens arrive and are fully staffed and and set up, we will be able to provide over 100,000 meals a day. And that, yes, clap. This is why generosity matters, because you're sitting in these seats, and there are people who are sitting in those seats, and they don't know if they were going to eat today, but because of your generosity, they get a meal. Their kids get to eat in a place where so much of the, their life is up in the air, the one constant they have right now is that the generosity of you is actually providing for them. And what I secretly love 
is that FEMA right now, because I keep up with these stats, FEMA, so our national government's organizational structures to do this, provides about 200,000 meals a day in Puerto Rico. And that we could very easily out-food FEMA. <laughs> I'm, that's pretty cool, right? It's like, here's this big old, like, richest nation in the world. And then here's a bunch of churches who voluntarily are giving to make a difference. It's why on Christmas Eve, on our biggest Sunday, we're having two services, right? 9.30 and 11, because we really believe it'll be our biggest attendance ever. We've already decided that every single penny that comes in that day is not going to operations. It's not going to us. It's going out of us. Because we believe in generosity, because we serve a God who's Dead, his declaration at Christmas time was that he gave so that we could have life. And so that forms our story and it forms the headlines that we want to write in the hearts of people here, there, and everywhere. And so just know if you're here on Christmas Eve, bring a lot of money. Okay? Yeah. Can I say that? Bring a lot of money. Write big checks because we're going to make a difference with it. Here, there, and everywhere. And so the people sitting around you know that they're generous. And I can't wait to see us grab hold of these five families and love on them and, and give them a Christmas they've never experienced before. And I can't wait to next Sunday say, okay, we, need a, we got some more families because you guys just rocked it. Because when we practice generosity, we don't just experience better living. We start to see a better life, not just for us, but for others too. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the privilege that you give us to practice generosity. Thank you that you're a God who meets our needs, that you satisfy those needs. And forgive us for the times when we allow that to turn into greed. Thank you that you're a God who, um, who made it, who made money, and that, that it's not a bad thing to have it. It's a good thing. It's a rich tool. And uh, I pray that we would be, as a people, that we would be generous. That we would be people who make a difference, not just in the lives of those around us, but that, as we were just celebrating a, a minute ago, that we would make a difference around the world. And then thank you, God, even for this space and this place, that this space is um, only here because of the generosity of people. And that the storylines of what we have seen and what we will see is built on the sacrifice of those who are generous. And then thank you, above all, for your generosity. That you step into our places of need and longing. That you move into our places of desperation. Sometimes they're emotional. Sometimes they're financial. Sometimes they're relational. But in our poverty, you bring your riches. And I know, God, that even today that there are people who are present both in this room and digitally who are in places of poverty, who are in places of hopelessness, who are in places of darkness. And I pray that even as we sing and as we close out our day, 
that we would be reminded, that we would be refreshed, that we would experience the riches of your generosity. That here and now we can taste that you're good. That we can experience the hope you provide. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Let me tell you what's going to happen if you're new here. Uh, This incredible team who sacrifices and who serves every single week, right? (laughs) Who do such a great job. Um, They're going to close us out um, with a song. And the song is just speaks to that heart of what I was just praying over you. I, I get... As, as the pastor, I get to know you and I get to get into your storyline and, and, and I recognize that for many of us, we are in places and it's not, it's not all good, that we can feel good about the generosity we're practicing, but I recognize that some of us are having financial struggles in our own lives, that some of us are having relational struggles, emotional struggles, job decision struggles, and that, that maybe what you need today is not just for you to practice generosity, but to experience a God who practices it. And so the song we're going to close out today is called Here Now. And it's just this declaration that here is a God who's present, who comes into our lives, who brings peace, who brings love, who brings hope and his riches he provides for us in our impoverished state. And then let me mention this. Because of the generous people in this room, if you're in a financial place right now and you're, and you're struggling, we... We would love to step into your storyline and help you, too. And so swing my starting point today. There's somebody in a gray shirt who would love to talk to you and collect a little information, and we'd love to engage with you. But I want to invite you to stand. And in this moment of responding, some of you, it is to practice generosity. And it's the app, or it's going to be in the basket that gets passed around. For some of you, it may be just to, to let us know how we can be praying for you because you're in a place and you're in struggles and you would love someone that would bring light into your darkness and, and know that that's, that's in the app. You can hit prayer requests. You can swing by starting point today. But we would love to be a church that doesn't just flow generosity into the community but into our lives through the God who is generous in how he provides. And so they're going to lead us. We're going to respond. We're going to sing to a God who is here and now.